Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. (laughs) That's right. That's good enough. (laughs) Oh boy. Let's dive in. Today we have Wendy. She's a film producer, a mom, a bubby, a wife, an Orthodox Jew, and she got sentenced to 10 years in prison. Here we go. Wendy, welcome. Ask away. What would you like to know? I'm just your normal average Balshuva, so I became religious with my sisters in Omaha, Nebraska, where we were born and raised, because it made our parents crazy. It was our little rebellion. They grew up secular, loving, wonderful families. But, you know, they had Shabbos and they just did their own thing. My dad would go referee football games, whatever. I had like Shabbos dinner and then he'd go. So we were like, we're going to be religious. And my parents were like, no, you're not. And we're like, yes, we are. And we're going to wear skirts. And we're like, no, you're not. It's winter. You're going to wear pants. No, we're not. Crazy. I'm sure they went in the kitchen and laughed themselves sick. This is their big rebellion. They're not on the streets. They're not doing drugs. They're not bringing home weirdos. They're just want to be kosher this is just fine with us and they put up a good front and then my parents became orthodox too go figure what did friday night dinner look like growing up so growing up we went to my grandparents they'd light candles they'd make kiddish just very functional have a delicious dinner and then everybody drive home and watch the brady bunch and have a life and there was like nothing it was just like there was symbolism and there was still that and that was great but then that was pretty much it so then it was all three of us like Orthodox girls in high school in Omaha, Nebraska, public school, and just doing our own thing and rushing home before Shabbos on Fridays. It was kind of crazy, super fun. All of our friends knew and they were really supportive. My mother, she was really savvy and she said, fine, if you want to keep kosher, I'm going to buy you a big set of dishes and pots and pans. We're going to eat what we want on our side of the kitchen and you do what you want. But here's the deal. If you want us to eat together, you cook. So then we learned to cook. We went to Turo, went to Jewish college. From there, we all found dudes and got married. And if you notice, and it has been noted by several people, that the biggest craziness, riots, and demonstrations occur in New York, Seattle, and Minneapolis. There has been some scuttlebutt that maybe it's caused by us, but we don't think it was caused by us. We just think we inspired it. (laughs) No, no, no. Did you eat McDonald's prior to starting to cook for your parents? Oh, girl, we ate everything. Everything, lobster, everything. We just didn't know. There was no like back and forth transition period for you because even learning the rules of kosher is a process. Totally. And I'm sure we screwed up a lot of things in the beginning. We had really good mentors and inspiring people around us. And they were like, okay, you do this, you don't do this. It's crazy how natural it seemed to just adapt. You know, again, this is, I'm 55, so this was like 40 years ago. You gotta understand, it seemed like the thing to do when we were sticking it to our parents this way. It was that extra, I'm gonna be vigilant just to torque you off. Okay, well, that yeah. makes sense. And we have great parents, super fun, super wonderful people, very supportive. My dad had been a social worker for a while and he really knew what could be. And he didn't understand it really. Like my parents don't read a word of Hebrew really, but my mother's favorite expression is Baruch Hashem, thank God. Like that's her thing. 
if everything that my mother thinks about really, and she's kind of a little bit of a disconnect, is everything I have is good and thank God for it. She's the most religious woman I know. She was an actress and my dad's a drummer. They're just wildly talented, fun people. And I said, you always looked like you knew exactly what to do as parents. And she said, we were fooling you. We had no idea. There's not a lot of Jews in Nebraska. Not anymore. No, uh, you know, there's a That's nice- That's what I community. say. I say yeah. that about Kentucky. People are like, there's Jews in Kentucky. I'm like, not now that I left. Exactly. Yeah, Nebraska, there wasn't a lot. And there's a nice, beautiful, little thriving community there as well now, really vibrant. I haven't been there a long time. I try not to go through Iowa because I get arrested a lot in Iowa. So I just try not to go through. All right. You brought that up now. So that's where we're going. I mean, I want to know what it was like walking through the door of a prison. I have this weird, my mother noticed it first. She said, you're never uncomfortable anywhere. So it was a long process. I was invited to Iowa to shoot a feature film. And the former governor of Iowa was like, oh, we're going to do this really big. We're going to make this really big, really big. But they had a terrible infrastructure, but we didn't know. So he was one guy in an office in the state capitol, and you'd send him an email, he'd send it back, and he'd advise me what to do. And I, I'd verify with my attorneys that this is based on the legislation, and they would agree. Fast forward, the program collapsed under its own weight. They had one gentleman managing $300 million of the projects, of which the state of Iowa, I had contracts for $84 million of those projects. And they didn't want to pay me $84 million, which technically when you renege on a contract, you have to pay half. And so they arrested me. And they kept changing the charges. And at one point in time, I had 15 felony counts against me. And I had, according to the papers, they said that I had personally trashed two different departments of state government, basically. So they charged them a bunch of stuff. They charged the state film commissioner and the tax credit broker because they knew that if they didn't charge me with something, I could sue. But I had no intention of suing. To the day I was arrested, February 10th of 2010, to today, they never questioned me. At any point in time, they never spoke to me at all. I was sitting in depositions, but I wasn't being deposed. They just didn't care what the real story was. They just wanted to get somebody. They stand to lose the most if I sued because all the other producers that were suing were winning because they had breached contracts. My attorney is a man named Matthew Whitaker. And if that name is familiar, he was the acting attorney general of the United States. I had extraordinary counsel and everything we did in trial, they would undermine it. Where were you when they arrested you? I was in Minneapolis and I was sitting at my dining room table and they said, there's a warrant for your arrest. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like they called you? They called me and then they emailed it to me. At the end of an eight day trial, which was crazy hard, crazy. Like the only thing I can equate it to is in the middle of labor. Pro Attorney General who prosecuted me realized that I was on the witness list and they never questioned me. And rule number one in a hearing of any kind is don't ask a question in court that you don't know the answer to. So they started throwing plea bargains at me. And I kept saying, no, no, no. And fourth one, Matt came back in the office and he said, I think you should look at this one. He said, they're going to stand silent during sentencing, not recommend a sentence. So it could be nothing. You have to just plead guilty to one thing. And there's zero dollars of restitution, not one penny. So I looked at the charges, which have been, by the time I went to trial, it reduced to five charges. And one of them was causing the modification of an application for the purpose of another production company to possibly do business in Iowa. No money traded hands. It was just an acquaintance of mine who emailed me and said, we're not getting any answers from the state film commissioner. Can you answer this? I said, I don't answer questions, but I can forward your email to him and see if we can get a resolution for you. And the state said, well, that was an intent to commit fraud. I said, if you tell me that I wasn't supposed to trust the state official, I accept responsibility. 
I accepted the plea bargain. So I'm a convicted felon. And they said, okay, come back for your sentencing on May 18th. So I came back for my sentencing. Matt's like, I don't think this is going to go well. And I said, how can it not go well? Like, I don't understand. And he said, there's murmuring in the courthouse. And sure enough, the judge ripped me a new one and said, you have single-handedly, as we said, corrupted two different departments of state government. You show no remorse. You deserve the maximum because you're an unrepentant criminal and you get 10 years in a women's maximum security prison. And they shackled me up and took me away. I'm shocked. I get into the lockup. There's a woman there who's she's probably been there, I don't know, 15, 18 times. And she looks at my paperwork over my shoulder. She goes, honey, you, he said you could have an appeal bond. What's that? She said, appeal bond? Your attorney, if you've got a good attorney, you could be out today. He's already getting you a bail bond. I said, um, wow, cool. And then I had nothing to worry about. God had it handled. I was out in a matter of hours. But I encountered a woman sitting there. She's wearing a very nice black dress. I'll never forget. She was furious. And she was an attorney who had crossed the judge in regards to a client or something. And the judge gave her 45 days. But here's the kicker. I looked at her and said, excuse me, are you Jewish? She's like, yeah, how'd you know? I was like, yeah, I bageled her right then. She was a severe asthmatic. And they literally just locked her up in the courtroom for making the judge angry and walked her in and then locked her for 45 days. I, for some reason, so I'm a rule breaker. I tucked my inhaler under the mattress and it saved her life. She didn't get hers for nine days. I was out that day and my dad picked me up in jail. Thanks for picking me up, dad. I'm 46 years old. Like that's just creepy. And then he said, you have to see the attorney tomorrow morning. So we sit overnight in Des Moines and my dad sat, better call daddy. My dad sat on the bed in the hotel room opposite mine and just watched me sleep all night. Like he was so worried about me. It was so sweet. But I woke up in the morning and then we went to my attorney and he said, you know, you need to hire an attorney to handle this appeal. And I said, all right, counselor, you're hired. He said, no, no, no defense attorney ever handles your appeal. I said, nobody knows it better than you do. And I trust you. And I don't trust a lot of people here in the state and I'd like it to be you. And he's like, okay. And then he did the best he could. And then the state was just determined to get me put away. So after two years of fighting it, fighting it, I went to Israel for my daughter's wedding a month before I had to surrender. And then February 11th, I surrendered on Rosh Chodesh Adar because my Rav, Rabbi Chaim Goldberger, who was with me the entire time, said, if you're going to have to go in, you've got to go in on Rosh Chodesh Adar because anything can change. And so we negotiated that date. And I surrendered and I walked in like, well, this is going to be an adventure. And that first guard that saw me said, they did a job on you. They really screwed you over. Guards would come to me in prison and they'd say, how long are you here? And I would say the same thing. I'm here until God feels that I can do more good outside than inside. But right now, apparently I have a job to do. Most of them are really cool. A couple predators, a couple creepers. You knew right away who to avoid and you could just tell. The first woman I walked in, her name was Benny. And she said to me, have a blessed day. I'm like, what a wonderful thing. And I come to find out that Benny was a schizophrenic who sacrificed a grandchild to the devil. And that's why oh. she was in prison. Yep, she was next door to me. Who was your cellmate? I had a bunch of them. You know, and then sometimes I was by myself. And then sometimes I was in a room with like 11 other offenders. No. All the gamut, like everything, violent criminals. I have a very good friend who is a lifer, and she was in the unit I was in for a long time. Exceptional woman, and 32 and a half years she was in prison, and she got that overturned, and she didn't commit a crime, and she's free now, and she's my sister, my, an amazing woman, and she's the one who told me to file my own paperwork so I could be released. I want to meet her now. 
She's just amazing. They bake me a prison cake, a kosher prison cake for my birthday. You were able to keep kosher in prison? I have to. Yeah. I lost a lot of weight in prison. I found it subsequently, but I did lose it. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend that as a weight loss system either. When I got out, I was speaking in London. I was speaking to all the world. In London, this woman comes running up to me and she said, I'm the mother-in-law of the Chabad rabbi in Des Moines. And I said, oh my gosh, it's so nice to meet you. They were so good to me. And she said, and I packed you all of your food for Pesach because I was there for Pesach. So I packed you all of your food and labeled it and we brought it to the prison for you. But they decided not to give it to me. The prison said, oh, we don't have anything for you. Because they wanted to stick it to me. They, 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 they liked it. A couple of the wardens, they loved it. They loved the idea of like, she's a Jewish princess, let's break her. Did you wear a wig in prison? I wore a hat. No, I never uncovered my hair the whole time I was in prison, except for when I was being released, I was going to court and they took my brain. They wouldn't let me have it. That was super emotional. So the women that I was friends with, a bunch of, a lot of women stood in that sidewalk with their arms over their heads so that nobody else could see my hair, just the women, the offenders. Did you explain to them why you cover your hair? Yeah, they knew. And they knew that when the rabbis came to give me shear, it was amazing. And tell me what's going on at home and describe my son's bar mitzvah because I missed it. I was in prison for that. Okay, wow. You got to slow down and talk about that. That's huge. Man, that's huge. I could see the porcupine quills in his heart for a long time after that. It was so senseless. There was no reason for me to be there. And everybody kept saying, there's no reason for her to be here. What can you do? Like, you, you're in the system. You're in the system. Did I think it was going to be 10 years? No. Right away, a counselor said to me, it won't be more than two years. I'm like, oh, it's going to be that long. Two years is a long time of your kid's life. I know. So my kids were, one was 21. My son was 21. How long were you in prison? Six months and four days. That's a long time. And so what happened? Um, my friend Christy gave me a directive. Here's what you need to do. Felt the paperwork. And I and my husband and all the attorneys we consulted were like, no, no. And so we, I filled it out. And it's just a 75-cent form you buy at the library. That's it. And I sent it to the judge with a bunch of letters of support and from home. And my husband got on board and my rabbi got on board. And then the judge who was handling my case, he decided not to review it. Now, let me go back two steps. At my trial, the first directive that the judge gave to the, they were doing jury selection. And he said, it's really not legal to park here longer than two hours. But if you park here, you can park illegally in that lot or you can park illegally in that lot. And if you get a ticket or towed, we'll take care of it for you. You're like, I'm not doing anything illegal right now. <laughs> so I'm like, wow. So the laws don't really count is, was like the message. And I turned to my attorney and, and I said, do you see the inconsistency? And he said, I see it everywhere. What are you going to do? So he had a great time ripping me apart. I remember watching the pleasure on his face when he was like, you are you're disgusting. And blah, blah, blah. like he was horrific. How did your family respond to that? They were not in the room for that hearing, thank God, because we really thought it was going to be okay, two years probation, don't do it again, pay a fine. Six weeks after I was sentenced to 10 years, the state official who had nine felony counts against him went to trial and he was acquitted on eight counts. And the one count he was convicted of was felonious misconduct in office for misdirecting me. So I said, I did what he told me to do. And he was convicted of misdirecting me. And the same judge who gave me 10 years said, sir, obviously you were busy and you're overworked in your position. That wasn't fair. And he gave him a $750 fine and he walked away. So I'm thinking, you know, I better learn a lesson here that's like, okay. I knew that it was an uphill battle with the judge. So I submitted to him and he made the decision not to open it. 
and Judge Gamble, God bless him, took it from him and sent me a letter calling me into court a month later and said, I'll hear this motion. Speaking of stigmas, I know there's a stigma about going to jail. What has the community's response been to you? I've never read any of the media. I was told not to, and I didn't. And there were some people who were like, oh, horrified. And a few times I got ripped in person, like really. Tell me what Hillel Hashem means. So Hillel Hashem means that I had desecrated God's name by being a criminal. So here's the fact. Like the fact is that everything they said that I did, they dropped all those charges. So the last time I looked, and I'm not really a legal expert or anything, but forwarding an email is not a problem. I wasn't making any money on it. But when you choose not to ask the defendant a question to find out exactly what went on and just went on their own conjecture, they just had to get somebody, and I was the somebody. So if I'm a criminal, I suck. <laughs> I really like, you're not smart enough to do any of the things that they said you did. Tell me who are the Ruboshkins. So the Ruboshkins was a family who owned a very large kosher meat plant in Postville, Iowa. They alienated some, and there had been some really serious charges brought against the son. He did do federal prison time, but he was accused of just about 100 immigration violations to compound what they said he'd done before. And he was already like in shackles in a federal prison. But I just know after the fact that the attorney general who prosecuted me prosecuted him. And on the state case, every single charge, he was acquitted. And this attorney general was furious. He spent so much time and money and PR. And so he was going to go after the next Orthodox Jew. I am stuck forever with forever because in Iowa, it never goes away. I'm never allowed to vote again. I can't have a gun. I can't run for office. Um, I was one of the three states that forever, when you're convicted, that's it. And I pled guilty to believing the state official. And so that's a scoop. So I said, I don't know the Rubashkin family. And he said, I'm asking you how their family is doing. And it was a threat. There's no question it was a threat. Wow. And my attorney at the time wrote a letter to the, the governor in the office and saying this is not acceptable. Oh, he was just joking. Would you ever joke with an offender? How did this affect your family? It aged my parents dramatically. Like they have some health issues that they probably shouldn't have had now. But they know me and they know that I am stressed, you know. My sisters prayed for me intensely. My niece and nephews, my kids. My husband worked diligently to keep the family together. So two kids were out of the house. Two youngest ones were in fifth grade and seventh grade. And then went into summer and didn't know where I'd be and went through his bar mitzvah without me. And, um, but I heard he did a great job. Did he visit you? I didn't allow anybody to visit me except for my attorney because there were prostitutes doing business in the visitor's room. And I was not going to subject my husband and my kids to that, nor was I going to have them turn around and have to leave me there. At the time, they didn't love that idea. And after the fact, they were like, they said, thank you so much for not making a secret like that. That would have been just horrifying. Did anybody ever attack you? I never had an altercation ever. Not one time. I saw a lot of them. I saw incredible violence. Tell me about it. So there was a girl who had been through treatment. Her offense was public intox and a couple of the things. She was drunk and probably high when she was like 21. And she was a new mom and single. And she was walking outside. She got jumped by a guy who dragged her in the alley and he was going to hurt her. And he had a steak knife. That was his weapon. She got the steak knife away from him and she stabbed him. He had like five stitches on his arm and she got away. But he said, oh, she attacked me. So she did like two years in treatment in prison, and then she did another couple years. And she should have gotten out. Appeal was denied. She 
was a mentor for women who were mentally ill. There was a woman that she was the mentor for, and she took her outside to sit in the yard, and the gal just had a psychotic episode and beat Ashley's head into the cement until she was unrecognizable. It broke her nose, her cheekbones, her eye sockets, her jaw, and then she was in the hospital for about a month, and then she came back, bruised, big circles under her eyes, and Still good attitude. She said she was nervous. That gal went into solitary probably for a life. And so about two months after this happened, she was denied parole again. And the reason they gave was they weren't sure if she could manage her anger. And so I wrote this scathing rebuttal to the appeal. And she walked free 10 days later. Thank God. There were guards who should never have been guards. No question they were predators. I said to one guard once, I said, sir, what brings you here on a Sunday morning? He said, $26 an hour. Okay. What was a day in the life of being in prison? Get up in the morning and then I would have roll call and they would come through your cell at five o'clock and they'd do count. And then I would get up really early and they'd allow me a private place to daven. So I'd take my time and daven chakras and that was cool. Then there was breakfast. So I, I had like, you know, a package of cereal and a little carton of milk. And then for lunch and dinner, I had a couple baby bagels and and um, maybe a carrot or an orange or something. And then that was it. Like that was pretty Peterborough. And then um, for dinner, it was the same. And that's what they would provide. And then slowly, the, they kind of loosened up the rules. And I could have food for Shabbos. And then the rabbis would bring it in for Shabbos. And like, first it was just challah rolls and grape juice. And then I was like, by, by Purim, two weeks later, I was like, I'm starving. You need to bring in. And they like put cold cuts in, the, in some of the challah rolls and brought me a big bag. And, and then after that, they would start to bring me, you know, a little bit more. And they were super wonderful, generous. And um, so then I had enough. I could like eat through the week. And that was fine. That was fine. And I did a lot of exercising, a lot of, a lot of working out and a lot of um, walking with the women, hearing their stories, trying to counsel them, get them to a place. I told the Rabbi Tversky story about lobsters. Brilliant story. Um, Dr. Rabbi Avram Tversky, one of the foremost experts in the country on uh, addiction issues. And Reb Michal Tversky was very close and he was incredibly supportive. He said there's a video on YouTube that's just fantastic. It's like a minute 13, it's nothing and it's life changing. About, he said, uh, Do you know how lobsters grow? Now, he's a psychiatrist. So he said, Do you know how lobsters grow? And he said, I don't really care about lobsters, but I was in the dentist's office and there was an article and I was interested. So I saw that, I thought I'd read it. And lobsters grow, they're, they're hatched and they're these little squishy things and they hide under the, a rock and they hide under a rock until they, an ectoskeleton forms a day or two later. And then they scamper about and they do lobster things. They eat and they frolic around. And then suddenly their, their um, shell gets too tight. They've eaten and they've grown. And it's uncomfortable. So they have to crawl under a rock. They split down the middle. They crawl out of their shell and they wait for another shell to grow. And then this goes on 10, 12, 15 times in the course of a lobster's life. So what does that say? Being uncomfortable is a catalyst for growth. But nowadays, if you're uncomfortable with something, an idea, a concept, anything, you just go to the doctor, they give you a Percocet, they give you a Vicodin, you're not uncomfortable anymore. Well, we can't do that. That's not how we grow. We grow by figuring out how to adapt in the uncomfortable parts. So I would tell the story all the time, like, tell her the lobster story. So I tell that, and then these women would walk by me and, like, we're walking them down the, down the sidewalks or whatever, and um, they'd go like this, make little lobster claws. I'm like, you are a lobster. That was our thing. And because it's a fantastic 
visual image of, of a way to explain to someone that you can grow through what's uncomfortable. And it's all good. It's all, it's all going to be fine. Just go to where you're safe, figure things out, and then go out and do your lobster stuff. So um, it was like my days were filled with that. I just spent a lot of time. First, I was a housekeeper. It paid me 24 cents an hour. It was like the best workout I ever had. I had abs of steel. And then I was a librarian. You said you don't like to clean. I know. I suck, but I, it was really fun. It was like big open areas, and it was big mops, and it was fun. I was going to demonstrate beyond a doubt that I was not a Jewish princess. You know what's the funniest thing? That a Jew was telling a lobster story. Totally. I didn't mention how delicious they are. Uh, and then I was a librarian. And I read a lot of biographies. thought that was fascinating. Who did you read? Sammy Davis Jr., Michael J. Fox. Just a lot of contemporary biographies. Sammy Davis Jr., he really had a lot going against him. He was disabled. He had one eye. He was a veteran. He'd been in the Army. He had just beaten to a pulp all the time because he was little and he was mouthy. And yet he wanted to be Jewish. Like, really? Like, really? You need that? But it was a thing. So he was just a really interesting guy. Michael J. Fox tells a great story about how he was 16 and he looked like a 12-year-old. So he auditioned for a role in a Canadian television show with this really sarcastic 12-year-old. And he got the lead. And he made the decision to go to Hollywood. So he went to Hollywood and he fought for years and auditioned and he didn't get roles in three years and he was about to give up sleeping on somebody's couch. And then he got the family ties and then he got back to the future and he shot them at the same time. He shot the TV show in the day and back to the future at night. And it was crazy. But when Steven Spielberg called, you answer. And then a, a, a one that I loved was called 700 Sundays. Billy Crystal wrote about his father passed away suddenly when Billy was 17. His father was a jazz musician and a producer. And he was the most loved man. They'd have these, he only, he tallied it up once and he only had 700 Sundays with his father total. And so he recounted like how great those Sundays were. And so I read that book and I loved it. Just, it was so profound. So I had the privilege to meet Billy Crystal a few years ago. Well, he's talking to his family and just a nice older Jewish dude, just nice. And I said, excuse me. I hate to bother you, but I just have to tell you that it, I loved your book, 700 Sundays. It was so impactful, and I gave it to a woman in prison. I didn't bother to tell Billy that I was in prison at the time, because that's really too long of a story. And Billy's like, really? What did you like about it? Like, he was so taken aback. All the other brilliant things he's done in his life, he, I said, because I love the relationship you had with your father and how you, and how you treasured it, and to this day, it means so much to you. He said, you don't know what this means to me. Thank you so much. So what does it go back to tell us? that our own stories are really the most impactful thing we can possibly share. We're not going to ever have a better opportunity to create something. What about your children? How did they come out on the other side of you being in prison? When I was released, like it happened so fast, like the chief judge called me to court and he said, I don't know why you're here at all. You're going home today. And then poof, my shackles came off a short while later and I drove home with my husband. That was like it. And then I came home and I called my first, first, first call was I called my son, my oldest son. And it was my husband's cell phone. And he's like, hi, daddy. I was on the phone and I said, I'm sorry to disappoint you, it's mommy. And I said, how are you? And he said, fantastic now. He said, I'm coming home. We're on the way home. We'll be home for Shabbos. And then I called the other, the peewees, the younger two. And they later on told me, this is exactly where we were standing when you called. And they're like, hi, daddy. And I said, oh, it's mommy. We're on our way home. And they're screaming. And then I called my parents and they were just joyous. And then my husband didn't bring a charger with him and his phone was dying. We had like seven minutes of like Shalom Bias. Hi, honey, how are you? Nice to see you. Until I was like, why didn't you bring a charger? He's like, I didn't think I'd need it. <laughs> Whatever. 
my rabbi came to give me shear the class the day before. He said to me at the end of class, as the warden is taking him away, we stayed a long time, whatever. And he said, Mrs. Um, Rangi. I said, yes, Rabbi. And he said, my wife and I would like to invite you and your family for Shabbos dinner tomorrow night. Will you join us? Now I'm in prison. <laughs> and he's 200 miles from his house. I said, we'd love to, Rabbi. Thank you. And two hours later, I was taken out of that prison and I was brought to jail. And 12 hours later, I was in front of a judge and I was released that day. Guess where we went for Shabbos dinner? Rabbi's house. And then the community just flooded in. They all heard I was home and they just, a hundred people. The drunk sobbing women like crying and crazy, and the men at downside dancing, and they were so excited. So, people were supportive 100%. They knew I didn't do anything. I'm not smart enough to corrupt two different departments of state government. I did what I was told to do, and especially after the state official was convicted of misdirecting me, everyone went, Oh boy, she was telling the truth. Wow. And then it was a slap in the face when he got a $750 fine, and I got 10 years. Okay, what are we trying to learn here? So I was mad for a long time, Rena. I'm not, I'm not a saint. I was mad. Like, this is ridiculous. I have a family yeah. and a bar mitzvah to plan. I've got whatever, you know, I've got a company to run and all this kind of stuff. Really? So here's the deal. I was mad because I was inconvenienced. Wasn't what I planned. That's ego. It's not my time. It's God's time. Did you ever question your faith during this time? No, because that would be counterintuitive to me because I fought so hard. I was born the most blessed woman alive. Our parents, thank God, can I, are, like, used to write me letters in prison. We're so proud of you. We love you. The guards would read them and like, who writes letters like this? My parents do. They're proud of us. They're proud of me. I, I only have three skills. I can write. I can tell a good story. And I collect amazing people who do the rest of my crazy plans. That's it, really. That's really, that's all I got. Look, how are diamonds made? They're made with heat and pressure. You cannot be a diamond if you don't endure heat and pressure. So that, well, okay, this is an opportunity for me to be more of a diamond. Like, Do you have any funny memories from prison? Okay, so I had a roommate, a cellmate. Her name was Tracy. And she was just a kind, wonderful gal. And Tracy had been in treatment. She was an alcoholic. She was a cage wrestler. Like, she was a very attractive woman, but she, probably 33 at the time, but she had cage wrestled. She's just, it was a tough gal. The only two things that freaked her out in the whole world that's frightened her Three daughters at home frightened her were doing life in prison because she killed somebody because she had a bad temper and putting a minnow on a hook to go fishing. Like those are two things that she could not <laughs> reconcile at all. And I'm like, they don't belong in the same sentence. She was incarcerated because she'd had a, a DUI. Then she had a public intox. And what happened? So she and her boyfriend, I think, got drunk and he had a really mouthy cousin. And Tracy did not take kindly to that. So she chased this woman in the backyard. She chased her into the house. And this gal got in and closed the door to Tracy's house and locked the door. And Tracy was furious. And she'd been drinking. And her boyfriend was six foot eight, 250 pounds. And he stood in the doorway trying to calm her down. And she picked up her foot again to kick in the door. And she picked up a little too high. And she hit him in a tender spot and felled him like an oak. And so he starts screaming outside. The cousin calls the police and says, she's assaulting someone. She's assaulting him and whatever. Hence the fact she got picked up and she did. She had a, she had a five-year sentence. She did 13 months. I loved this interview, Wendy. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me. The honor is all mine. Thank and you so much for asking me, Rita. Wow. Oh my God. I cannot wait to hear what my dad has to say about this. I feel like he is going to absolutely love you. 
oh my gosh, I look forward to it. And my dad's going to love you. My dad's going to be like, what the heck? Wow. You know, what are you doing? I'm just talking, dad. To me, it looked like uh, she was used as a scapegoat uh, for things that went wrong. They couldn't really pin it on anybody. And, uh, uh, and she was the, uh, the, fall, the fall guy. I know how that feels, that's for sure. As you know, the whole uh, city of New Albany, Indiana, was having issues with their sewer system. And if they could blame uh, a company at the end of the line, when everything was hooked to our line, wasn't that a convenient thing to do to our company as well? And as you know, we fought it for seven years and then made a deal where the fine was as mu almost the same amount of money as the amount of uh, attorney fees. So when it comes to lawyers, when it comes to politicians, it's not uh, an easy way uh, to have a winning formula once they're in. It's almost like a, a tick on your uh, skin, hard to pry them off. I thought it was quite ironic that to pay her parents back, living in, in Nebraska, that she and her uh, two sisters decided to become more religious or to become orthodox. And isn't that funny how all or none is the question of the day where, okay, you want us to be good. You want us to be able to do this. You want us to be able to do that. Okay, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll do it all. And in your case, where you're Jewish, but not following all the rules, it, it's almost like a little hypocritical or a game played in reverse where your parents then have to rise to the occasion and do better themselves. And in this case, their parents became religious as well. And when you get into trouble or you have a problem, isn't it also quite ironic as well, is that you don't lose sight of God when you're in trouble, but you reach out to God and you reach out to your community and uh, the religious community will rally uh, amongst itself and, and help you uh, get through the difficult times. And isn't that what is also part of God's presence on earth is that he wants you to be able to not only do well yourself individually, but that it's just as important, if not more important, to be family-oriented, where you don't just think of yourself, and community-oriented, where you think of your whole community as well. And having all these levels of support help get you through life and uh, you have to be there for each other in times of good times where we have celebrating bar mitzvahs and weddings, but also in tough times. And especially if we get into trouble where we're just a political prisoner or part of a political game. But this is another example where the lawyers tell you one thing and yet you don't even know what to believe because you have lawyers that are against you and, and the lawyers that are even supposed to be defending you play games where you don't really know where you stand either way and you're really taking your chances and the only way that you really can sometimes get out of trouble is by doing the research of the law yourself the better call daddy show is now proudly sponsored by sadie simper designs listen i had sadie make some custom animated gifts for this podcast and they were fantastic Animated GIFs are a great way to make Instagram stories more interesting, and they can also be used in place of your logo to make your emails more dynamic. Sadie creates custom branding, 
She doesn't just take a logo based off of nothing. She helps you take time to build your brand's identity and she creates a brand suite that is truly tailored to you. Have you seen my Megawatts Productions logo? She made that. Visit sadiesimperdesigns.com to see portfolio and brand packages. For 20% off your custom gift or brand suite, email sadiesimperdesigns at gmail.com and use the subject line, call daddy. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Yeah.